What had happened was I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and went to Fairborn High School. And from there, went on to learn about medicine and government policy at the White House and global health at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and now how to develop important vaccines at a company called Takeda. And now we're in the middle of a pandemic, and I'm very excited to say that at this moment in my life, I have a chance to make a difference for my family, my community, and if all goes well, the rest of the world. Thanks for finding the What Had Happened Was podcast. It's me, Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com, and I hope you're hanging in there. The voice you just heard belongs to Dr. Rajiv Vinkaya, whose life has gone in ways to never imagine the day he gave his graduation speech as valedictorian of Fairborn High School back in 1985. After years working with patients, Rajiv landed a job at the White House where he led a team that helped come up with a national strategy to deal with pandemics. The team's work is part of the reason people today around the nation are social distancing to flatten the curve. And that's not all. Rajiv is championing a global push that may soon see plasma used to save lives of those battling coronavirus. We get into all this on this episode. The What Happened Was podcast is a project of Dayton.com recorded with my trusty sidekick, Tigger, right by my side. That is abundantly clear in this episode. Subscribe and rate this show on Apple Podcasts, iHeart, Stitcher, Google, and wherever else you find shows you love. Now here's my chat by a conference video with Rajiv, who I met a few years ago at his sister Rajiv's wedding. She's a former DDN colleague who now works as Chief Communications Officer for the Ohio Department of Health. I wanted to thank you for having a snake at the boom shop named after you. I'm sorry that he passed. I didn't understand that. <laughs> how did that even happen? Did you name him, or how did? How, why was he named after you? Oh no, I, that that happened without my without my awareness. I learned about it. I think probably a couple of years after it was done. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so you've been busy lately, huh? Uh, you know, we're all busy. Yes. <laughs> But I think you've been a little bit more busy than the rest of us because you're trying to... We've been doing a few things here. Rania brags about you all the time. I think you know that, right? She's always talking about all the things you're doing all the time. <laughs> I, I didn't know that, so that's, that's good to hear. So when you were at Fairborn, did you ever imagine that one day you're going to be doing this sort of work and involved in this important research? I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do in, in high school, but I knew that I enjoyed science and math and figured out I would do something in that space. I assumed that my career would be in that space, and that's the direction that I, I went. But after I got into medical school, I had some real questions as to whether this was the right path for me. That was at early in my medical school years, which was, by the way, in Ohio. Okay. At, it was called now Neomed, which is the six-year program that you start out of high school and spend two years in undergrad and then four years in the, in the medical program at the medical school. My initial trepidation about medicine diminished a lot when I got into the clinical years because I found it really okay. Yeah, I was trying to be really sly about it, but you saw me. It at all. I'm going to eject him from the room, maybe one second. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. He thought I was going to go feed him, which is why he left so long. So quickly. The bottom line is that when I got into to the patient care roles, which are the later years of medical school, in my third and fourth years of medical school, I found that I really enjoyed taking care of patients. That reinforced for me that I was on a, a good path and 
when I and that feeling only increased when I got to my medical residency at the University of Michigan and continued when I did my specialty training in pulmonary and critical care medicine. So I actually ended up enjoying patient care tremendously and enjoying medicine quite a bit and really appreciated having the impact that I was able to in, in the roles that I had. Now, how did you switch to researching solutions for pandemics? Like, how did that whole thing come about? Well, I didn't start with researching it. I actually started with uh, with looking at pandemic influenza from a government policy standpoint. Because while I was in San Francisco, I applied for this program called the White House Fellows Program that takes people from different backgrounds and puts them in government at a senior level for one year to have that exposure, learn about policy and leadership and public service and ideally take all of that back to whatever field they came from and wherever they came from. And that was my plan going into the fellowship. But during that year, I found an opportunity to help out at the White House in the biodefense arena, which is very much focused on medicine and public health and science. So that was a good fit, given my interests. And I ended up staying at the White House for four years. And during the four years that I was there, the bird threat became real for countries in Asia. And the U.S. became very concerned that that virus would jump over to humans and become easily transmissible between humans and cause a severe influenza pandemic like what we had seen in 1918 or worse. The office that I was running at the time was staffed by people that had either medical or veterinary backgrounds, but also knew something about making policy. So the natural home for the coordination of the pandemic flu efforts was our office, the biodefense office in the White House. The key moment in all of this happened in the fall of 2005 when the threat was becoming more and more apparent and President Bush was recognizing that this needed to be an all-of-government approach, that it wasn't just a Department of Health and Human Services approach. He asked Fran Townsend, who was my boss, the Homeland Security Advisor, to develop a strategy to address pandemic influenza. And so she came down to my office and said, we have to go talk to the president about this. So we went to the Oval Office, and he said, bring me a strategy. And we said, we'll do that in two weeks. Uh, that, was, um, that was October of 2005. How did you react to hey, you know, bring me a strategy for this huge problem when this really wasn't even the course you were on. Sounds like you were more medical and then you got into policy a little bit, but now it's like, bring me this solution to this problem that's global. When that happened, I had been in that working in that office for about two years. Okay. So I was very familiar with the policy process and the, the way to get things done in government. And we had already been doing a lot of thinking about what, a strategy should look like over the, the course of 2005. So by the time this happened, it wasn't that we hadn't been spending a lot of time thinking about what needs to be done. When I say we, it's not just my office, it was the National Security Council. Homeland Security Council and National Security Council were similar, but they were separated at the time. Um, but also several departments and agencies like Health and Human Services, the Department of State, the Department of Homeland Security, they were all thinking about endemic influenza. So what we did was we brought together all of the great work that had been done so far. We needed it together in a single strategy document, which is what was issued in November of 2005 when the president gave a speech at the National Institutes of Health. That was on, I think, November 2nd of that year. So it was about two and a half weeks after he asked us to develop a strategy, between two and a half and three weeks, between when he made the request in the Oval Office 
and when he announced the strategy at the NIH. How close to what we are doing now was the strategy? So what happened after we, we committed to making the strategy uh, is a couple of things. One is that we took the strategy uh, into a greater level of detail in a document that we call the Implementation Plan, which described all the things that the major departments and agencies needed to do to be prepared for a pandemic with timelines and lead agencies and very specific deliverables. And that was issued in May of 2006. But the document that you're referring to that was later updated is the one that's called the Pre-Pandemic Guidance on Community Mitigation. Community mitigation means the social distancing, the things that you do to restrict movement in communities and contact between people to reduce virus transmission. That's work that we began doing right around the time that we developed the strategy because we recognized that a vaccine would not be available for many months in the case of an influenza pandemic because it takes that long to develop and manufacture vaccines. And so communities would have to work with what they had available to them, which was the hospital infrastructure that they have, and then whatever measures they could, protective measures they could take to reduce transmission. It took all of 2006 and, and much of part of 2007 to develop this strategy because there was some pushback okay. because of the, the concerns about it. You may have read about this in, the, in an article in the New York Times recently. But that guidance was finally issued in 2007. That, I would say, is the template for many of the actions that are being taken in communities today to reduce COVID-19 virus transmission. And I would say that the types of things that are being done now are very similar to what we envisioned in 2007, but they go much further than we expected at the time. We didn't envision at the time that we would have a situation in which everybody in a community was being encouraged to just stay at home, everybody. At that time, we were envisioning that the actions would be taken at a point in time where if you acted quickly, that you could reduce overall virus transmission so these extreme measures wouldn't be necessary, and that you would only have to keep people at home that had a family member that was sick, for instance. What's being done now, I think, has been necessary because there has been a lot of virus transmission happening in communities around the world. This is not just a statement about the U.S. We're right. seeing this everywhere in the world. Because of the nature of the virus, it's been hard to differentiate and hard to recognize because it's so similar to the flu or the common cold. You could say it, it really took a lot of communities by surprise. When there was so much virus transmission happening at the time that the actions were implemented, the actions themselves had to be pretty significant to put a stop to that virus transmission. How do you think we are with the control of the virus, seeing what you see from your experience and knowledge? We've learned a lot in the past several months, and we are in a far better position today than we were January. I'm talking about the world because we have learned a lot about the virus, and we've also learned a lot about what we can do to control transmission of the virus. And the good news is that even without a vaccine, there is a way to control transmission of this virus. That has been proven. And and we should all feel good about the fact that the extreme measures that have been necessary have been effective. The problem is that the measures have been so extreme that they have put a stop to very important activities that are necessary for the functioning of society and the economy. And so now our challenge is to find the right level of restrictions that allows us to do the important things that are necessary to keep people at work, keep communities functioning, while at the same time not taking on great risk of virus transmission. And that is something that we're all figuring out. Communities around the U.S. and around the world are figuring this out. And the solution set is going to be different from community to community based upon a lot of factors. The way the community functions, transmission of the virus is happening, the willingness of the people in the community to do certain things, the availability of technologies, 
the access to testing and contact tracing and quarantine and isolation. And based upon what tools are available to a community, there are customized solutions that are being developed to get this under control. And I think we will be able to get it under control in most places, hopefully to the point when we have the ability to, to be able to keep it under control and be prepared for a possible second wave of the virus, which could come in the fall. We don't know if it will, but it could. So do you think ultimately, though, it'll be with us the way the flu is? It'll be always something that's in the background, or is there going to be like a cure to this? Stop in the action to remind you that you're listening to the What It Happened Was podcast, and I'm Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com. This podcast is a project of Dayton.com, sponsored by the Dayton Daily News. As our community and nation respond to the coronavirus threat, the Dayton Daily News is here, providing up-to-the-minute local coverage on our website and app, and going in-depth so you know what's really going on. Our news team is working around the clock to provide information you can trust to keep your family safe and connected. As a community, we may be hunkered down in our homes, but we are still Dayton strong. We have survived so much together and will get through this crisis too. The Dayton Daily News, your trusted source for local news. Polio is not cured, but it's not something that affects Americans. You think it'll be more like a polio or more like a flu? Two ways to think about that. What will happen if we never have a vaccine and what will happen with a vaccine? If we have a vaccine, and I do believe that we will have a vaccine, hopefully soon, then that will make everything a lot easier because we'll be able to make sure that large portions of the community, if not just about everybody, has the protection they need so that the virus can't transmit easily at all. That would be the best outcome. But until then, we don't really know what's going to happen with this virus. It's possible that this could become like other coronaviruses, which have become annual causes of the common cold. And if that happens, the assumption is that there will, over time, develop some level of immunity in the population. We call that herd immunity, which will reduce transmission, but also reduce the severity of the illness in anybody that gets infected. So my guess would be that the virus is here to stay and that over time it will become something that we be able to live with, uh, with the help of two things. One is natural immunity because over time a lot of people will become exposed. And the second is a vaccine. Yeah, the thing that's interesting about herd immunity is that we have never heard the term like in common conversation, and now everybody is an expert on herd immunity, which is funny and also not funny at the same time, <laughs> like so many experts. Right. But you guys are working on some projects to your company with plasma. What is that about? Well, that's really exciting. We, we are one of the major plasma product manufacturers in the world, one of the top three. And we, we were producing, we've been producing it for decades, a, an antibody solution, which is made from the plasma of donors, people who donate you know, plasma from which we purify the antibodies and we pool um, those antibodies for many people. And that becomes the product that we use to treat people with certain conditions, like immune conditions, certain rare diseases. In the case of this virus, what we're doing is something that has been tried with other viral infections and has shown to be promising, and that is to take the plasma and the antibodies from people that have successfully recovered from COVID-19, purify that, and of course, and pool plasma from any donors, and then give it to people that are in the midst of a COVID-19 infection. Those people who are currently infected with COVID-19, and they may be in the hospital with COVID-19, if it's early in their illness, their bodies haven't had time to develop the antibodies to protect them against COVID-19. That takes a couple of weeks or longer. 
So what we're doing is we're essentially giving them the antibodies that their bodies will develop a few weeks later, and we're bringing it forward in time. Oh, wow. To to them right now when they, when they need it most. And the hope is that we will be able to reduce the severity of the illness, possibly the length and presumably the length of hospitalization can accomplish that, and ultimately survival of people with, with COVID-19. So this is something that is moving very quickly within the company. We don't know for sure that it's going to work, but we think it has a good chance. We're projecting that we'll, we'll get through the clinical testing of this approach and have some supply of product. Our hope is by the end of this calendar year. Oh, wow. So there's a pretty aggressive timeline, but we think it's, it's, it's possible that things go well. But the other thing that I want to share that I think is really innovative is that we have decided not to be competitive about this. We need to be collaborative. And we've gotten together with the largest plasma companies in the world, and even small plasma companies, and formed an alliance to pool all of our collection resources around the world. So wherever companies are bringing in plasma, they're going to direct that plasma that comes from former coronavirus patients to a single manufacturing operation or possibly two manufacturing operations. So we make a we maximize the amount of supply of plasma, and then we're going to produce with them an unbranded product. Oh wow! Hyperimmune globulin, and that will be the product that we all of these companies will then distribute for patients that have COVID nineteen infections. But they haven't tested it yet in people. This product that I'm talking about now has not yet gone into clinical trials because okay. we're, we're making it right now. The product itself is actually being evaluated by many people around the world on a single person, single donor to single recipient basis. So what many hospitals, usually academic medical centers are doing, is they're removing plasma from a single person who has recovered from the infection, and they're giving that person's plasma to a person who's suffering from COVID-19 infection. And when that's been done in, in studies elsewhere, there are very promising signs that it works. So based on that and based on what we've seen with other viral infections, we think that uh, there's a good chance that our, our product will this plasma thing is really important for people to understand because it's a way that anybody who has been through COVID-19 and recovered successfully from can, can take advantage of to help other people. I mean, this is something that is it's as simple as a blood draw. Tom Hanks did it recently, and he said it's as simple as taking a nap. In that short period of time, you can do something that could save somebody else's life. So I would say to everybody who is looking at this incredibly difficult moment in, in history for all of us and asking, what can I do to help others? If you know somebody that has been through COVID-19 infection and has recovered and wants to help make a difference, suggest this to them. And one thing that we've done as part of this alliance is we have partnered with many others to get the word out. So the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is helping us to get the word out. Microsoft is helping us to get the word out. Even the FDA and the Department of Health and Human Services is working to get get the word out. Now, what will be your message to a young boy, a young girl in Fairborn right now going to school who wants to be a doctor? You can do a lot of good in the world by going into healthcare. And your path in healthcare may start off in one direction because you want to help people, and you may think that that's being a physician. And if you do that, that's incredible. But there are also many, many other things that you can do in healthcare that will make a difference in people's lives. You just have to look at what's happening in this pandemic right now. It's nurses and technicians and physicians and people who are assistants 
who are all doing their part to make sure our healthcare system is is working and is able to treat not just the people with COVID-19, but everybody else in the community that relies on your hospitals and clinics and physician offices to work. If somebody's thinking about healthcare, this is a great time to be thinking about it because we need really smart, committed, passionate people to be in healthcare. Keep it up. Well, hey, thanks a lot for talking to me. I know you're busy, so this is great. Thanks, William. Now, I told you Rajiv was making Fairborn and all Dayton proud. You can find out more about the alliance he's working on at covig-19plasmaalliance.org. I've added a link to the website in the episode description. So What Had Happened Was podcast is produced, written, and edited by me, Amelia Robinson, in our home office. The show's artwork is by my good friend Troy Liming of TL Creates of Columbus. Until next time. Stay healthy and at least six feet away from each other.